And welcome back, everybody, to Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I am your host, Daniel Rogers, and I have with me today one of my very best friends in the whole world, Mike Christie. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing A-OK, Daniel. How are you doing? Man, doing pretty good, pretty good. So you and I have an interesting story of how we met. Uh, Would you like to share some of the details to the people here? Sure, yeah. Um, I So I uh, had been listening to a podcast with Richard Rohr, Jackie Lewis, and Brian McLaren. And Brian McLaren opened up this podcast with a little bit of a riff where he is talking about being an English teacher and then a young pastor and kind of feeling confused and at a loss. And he was he was in his mid to late 20s at the time. And as I was listening to that, I realized just how much my own experience was mirrored with his experience. We can kind of get into the, the details of that a little bit later. Um, but so I emailed him just saying like, Brian, thanks so much for everything you had to say. I really related to it. Uh, my my path has kind of followed a similar trajectory. Uh, and then he emailed me back pretty quickly and let me know that I just, you know, was really resonating with what I had to say, but also said, would you mind if I connected you with a, a friend of mine down here in Florida? And I was like, oh, for sure. Yeah, that'd be great. And uh, long story short, he connected me with Daniel. And Daniel and I have been chatting about uh, deconstruction and how to, how to you know, create a new framework around a spirituality that is liberating and freeing. Um, and all the while, we have been able to kind of dip our toes into the work of Brian and also the presence of Brian. And the three of us hung out. What was it like? A year and a half ago now? Two years yeah, ago? it was what was it, in the spring before I moved back to Alabama. We uh, we went to Brian's house and hung out with his turtles and uh, <laughs> walked along the beach. <laughs> so that was, really, that was really cool. A hundred percent. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we just catch up every now and again. And here we are. Yeah, I had a very similar experience. I had listened to a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. And I was listening to their interview with Brian McLaren. Uh, I was about 35 episodes in. And I mean, I was devouring episode after episode. And when he talked about uh, the Bible as a weapon, that language resonated with me so much that I just had to reach out to him. And that's about the time that he was like, you know, you should talk to this guy, Mike, from Washington. <laughs> so um, we, it was funny how, uh, how similar our paths were. And, and I think that's why he wanted to connect us because, you know, he saw that there was a, a potential awesome relationship there. I mean, one guy in, in Washington, another guy in Florida coming together to, to, you know, I don't know, make America more mystic again or something. <laughs> I, don't, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. <laughs> so that's anyways, cool. I had a wonderful relationship and that's when we found out that Mike's, uh, Mike's family lived close to where I was living in Florida, which just, made me so happy. And we had a great, uh, great day together. And yeah, like you said, we've been friends ever since. And that's when he sent out the email uh, a few months ago, that back, I guess, at the start of the year saying, hey, I'm going to release a book called Are We Seeing This? Who Wants to Pre-Order a Copy? And so I sent him my 25 bucks and we got, <laughs> and it came in the mail pretty quickly with like an awesome jacket and all that stuff. And that's really what we're going to be talking about today. But first, I kind of want you, if you could, Mike, uh, give us sort of a snapshot of, of who you are, who, who you were, uh, where you were, 
who you are now and how all that fits together and how all that should make them want to listen to all 82 minutes or whatever this thing is going to turn out to be. I love it. Yeah, I I joked with you, Daniel, uh, before we started recording that I was born and before then I don't know what was going on, uh, which <laughs> is sort of an approach that I try and take. Uh, a little 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 spice of mystery, but I was gr- I grew up Catholic, um, and my family was raised outside of Detroit, so a town called Royal Oak in suburban Detroit, Michigan. And then around fifth, sixth grade, my family um, kind of got a little disenfranchised by the Catholic Church that they were involved in. Started going to a non-denom mega church. I got involved in the youth group there. Um, was pretty resistant at times to like some of the things that were being spoken, just because it seemed seemed fairly superficial. I'm a four on the Enneagram, uh, so I I just really desire authenticity and realness um, and uh, creativity. And I picked up pretty early on in high school that the youth group was just a series of here's why we don't have sex before marriage. And here's why we don't do drugs. and Here's why we don't drink. I'm like, okay, well, what do, what do we do? Because uh, this seems pretty, uh, pretty anti a lot of things. And it wasn't, wasn't all that engaging or interesting. But at the same time, it was a space now that you're allowed we- to do all of those things. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, I, and I do. I do do all those things. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think a lot of people in our audience can resonate with that because yeah, we a lot of us grew up with this culture of your shorts have to go to a certain point on your leg. And, you know, there are certain things you can do, certain, certain things you shouldn't do, you know, leave room for Jesus, this sort of thing. And uh, your whole life revolved around a list of things that you weren't supposed to do. And, uh, you know, where's the freedom? Where's the joy? Where, where's the liberation? Where's what we're for? You know? So I, I think a lot of people can resonate with that for sure. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's wild just this way that it like, it'll box you in, box you in, box you in. And then you can either kind of just adhere to it and, um, have a pretty clear line of whether or not you're like doing good or not in the eyes of that system, or you can be like, well, this is BS, uh, and step outside and start asking questions. And yeah, I, I think that's what started happening for me. Um, I, I it happened uh, quite, quite a bit throughout high school. Um, but I was involved in like English classes were the place that I really came alive. So honors and AP English and we'd talk about Emerson and Emily Dickinson and Henry David Thoreau and uh, finding meaning in, in nature and like a broader conversation of spirituality really spoke to me. So by the time my senior year rolled around in high school, I was pretty tapped out of the youth group vibe. Um, but I had also decided that the best place to continue my education would be at Moody Bible Institute particularly because I wanted to live in the Pacific Northwest and that was the cheapest school that I could get away doing it. Um, So they had, they, their main campus is in Chicago, but they had a campus out here in Spokane that has since closed down. So my family and I got in the car, drove all the way out to Spokane, Washington and, I went to Moody, I unpacked my bags, set up my speaker system, and the first thing I did was play uh, some music that uh, was in the eyes of my my uh, housemates, sacrilegious. Um, oh, it no. was probably Vampire well, Weekend. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, very risque. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I moved in, at that time, uh, I had been reading some Rob Bell 
actually with my mom, we had like kind of picked up uh, what we talk about when we talk about God and we're just processing through that. And just the notion of like maybe leaving all of spirituality behind isn't necessarily the answer. Maybe it's more about like finding a more open way to talk about it. Uh, but the first night that I was at Moody, I remember moving in some of those Rob Bell books and one of my housemates <laughs> asked my RA, what do you think about Rob Bell? In a kind of tongue-in-cheek tone. And my RA, um, who has since like come around to like being like, oh, wow, I, I'm surprised I said that, but uh, was, I don't think Rob's necessarily going to hell, but I think he might take a lot of people there. Uh, oh, and man. that, yeah, that began like a years-long journey of learning the complete opposite of everything that I wanted to believe about spirituality uh, through my education and then going home and like reading Richard Rohr, Rachel Held Evans, and trying to learn the rebuttal to this like narrow-minded, boxed-in spirituality, um, which was tough, but it was also extremely formative. Well, I know that I know that a lot of people that are listening can relate to that because they were probably pressured to go to a school like Moody. Um, in our in our particular tribe of the Churches of Christ, they probably went to a place like Fried Hardeman or Faulkner or some similar some similar school, maybe even like a seminary type school. And so they can probably resonate with that, with showing up excited, and then you know immediately the first weekend, it's like, oh wait, you listen to Vampire Weekend and uh, read Rob Bell, uh, you know this might not be the place for you after all. <laughs> <laughs> and just that whole year long process of it, of it dawning on you that like, man, I'm really learning what not to think here. And I appreciate that, but, uh, this is just killing me, you know, spiritually feeling suffocated, feeling like you're in that box. So, so what happened after that year? Yeah, I ended up transferring to a Presbyterian university. That's just like a private liberal arts school out here called Whitworth. Um, and you know, long story short, I think that like, I was I was definitely dabbling in the progressive mystic world of Christianity uh, for you know since since that summer of my senior year of high school and learning from from all those those writers in this camp uh, that have formed and framed so many things for a lot of us Brian McLaren definitely being one um, and got involved in a a more progressive open minded uh, spiritual community out here called branches um and after graduating uh the the pastor at branches was stepping away from his role and uh the church invited me to step into that role so at 20 22 or 23 i became the pastor of this uh, progressive spiritual community called branches here in spokane and it's been interesting to um to have kind of deconstructed my faith uh, and like waded through those waters. And then also pretty early on been given the opportunity to help walk with other people through that process. Um, and learning so much from the varied experiences. And there, there are so many more heartbreaking reasons uh, why people are forced to deconstruct their faith. For me, it was like kind of a, an esoteric, like philosophical thing where I'm like, this isn't working for me and I, I I need this to be like a bigger playground, but so many people in my congregation uh, and that I have encountered through the work that I have done have been forced to deconstruct simply because the version of faith that they were presented with doesn't accept them for who they are. Um, and realizing that this is a, a 
much bigger conversation that's not just philosophical in nature, but it, it actually is affecting like people's ability to truly live into their authentic and true selves. And wow. that's yeah. made it made it even more meaningful and real and uh, I think pertinent that there needs to be a more open view of what spirituality can be um, and what the Christ narrative can can lead us to. Yeah, it's beautiful. And that's one of the things we're trying to accomplish through this podcast. Uh, you know, we spend some time here deconstructing. We talk about uh, verses that may have been misused or concepts that aren't so helpful. Uh, but what we're also trying to do is help people, if they're ready for it, if it's if they're even ready for that season, uh, to enter into a form of reconstruction, you know, rediscovering who Jesus is and what he can be for us and, you know, what what we talk about when we talk about God, as you mentioned a while ago. So all these branches, uh, just real quick for any of our listeners who may be in and around the Spokane area, uh, what's your website for that church, Mike? Yeah, it's, it's allthesebranches.com. Allthesebranches.com. And so uh, I keep up with them on Instagram. Uh, they got great. I loved, I loved your artwork uh, for your uh, sermon uh, on Halloween. That was oh, awesome. The ghost stuff. That's just a really good job. So you can follow those guys on Instagram. You can look them up on Facebook and on online as well. And that led you to writing uh, your first book, right? What was it called? Yeah. First book was called Freeing uh, the Firefly. And that kind of <laughs> kind of t- dabbles into a lot of my own personal experience. Um, the main central metaphor being that when I was a kid, I would catch fireflies in Michigan and we put them in mason jars and put saran wrap on top and put them by our bed. But then the next morning we'd wake up and they'd be dead. Um, and my, <laughs> yeah. my notion of, uh, of the divine was kind of similar. Like wow. here's this way to understand God and you capture it and you keep it close by your bedside. You pray every night, you read your scripture before you go to bed. But if you really don't give the divine much room to actually interact and play, it's going to die. Um, wow. and so yeah. I began to understand that, uh, maybe, maybe the, the firefly along with the divine God spirit does better outside the jar. <laughs> it's like what uh, Rob says. Sometimes when we put God into a box, what we have in that box is no longer God. Mm, right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just our construct of who God is or who God can be. And it's just so limiting. And when you allow that firefly to, to, you know, to enjoy its freedom. Uh, you see its beauty every single night, not just for a few hours before you go to sleep, but you can return to experience it, the joy of it and its, and its uh, offspring, <laughs> you know, for yeah. years and well, years and years to come. Yeah. And you see the beauty of it through interaction, not through just what it is by itself. Um, when you try and capture and localize one single firefly, it's not interacting with an ecosystem. And I think the beauty of a firefly is is the abundance of multiple fireflies interacting with trees and leaves and a landscape. And uh, I think the same thing is is true for the divine. When you when you narrow in and have such a hyper specific focus on what that is, it doesn't get to interact with the rest of the landscape. And if the whole thing is holy, you want the whole thing. Yeah, that's that's why systematic theology is such a such a boring concept to me. Like, really, we can figure it out and put it into an outline, <laughs> really. Like, yeah, right. 
God could be contained into, you know, a, a list of 12 doctrines or whatever and 827 pages. Like, that's all we need, really. AKA and, uh, gatekeeping. Here's how we get people to abide by a system. Uh, yeah. I know. And so that, that's why, that's just why I love your your spiritual community up there and uh, what you guys are up to. It's, it's awesome. So, okay, so we moved from the Firefly book, which, which by the way, uh, <laughs> do you remember Mike when? You first emailed me to set up a Zoom call. I uh, went to the website that you know is found in your email address, and oh boy, uh, ordered your book on Kindle, and like memorized the whole thing. And so when we <laughs> got onto our first Zoom call, you were like, "Yes, yeah, so I grew up in you know this part of Michigan." I was like, "Oh yeah, that's kind of close to Detroit, and you were Catholic, and there were all these lakes you used to play in, and you know, your grandma, <laughs> Poppy, and Nanny, and all this." And you were like, "Oh." um, yeah, and then I moved to yeah. You moved to Moody. Uh, you went to Spokane. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> that's yep. That's funny. You're like reciting my life story. I'm like, wow, you know this better than I do. Uh, yeah, cool. Well, <laughs> it's uh, and that comes from sort of my need to to put to put things into jars beside my bed. Uh, that's funny. You know, that that whole culture of figure it all out, read it all, read the right stuff. You know. Uh, memorize the right passages and then you can be saved. And it's like, that's, that's so boring. You know, where's, where's the interaction? Where's the love? Where's the life? So mm. and I was never any good at that. I like whenever, you know, they're at that non-denom church, they did scripture memorization and I was the kid who like never got the candy because I like never did it. And, and so I think, yeah, I, I pretty early realized like this, this is not all that. This isn't for me. I got to figure something else out. And that's that's such an important thing to point out because some people may be thinking, you know, maybe listening to this podcast and they're thinking, you know, I didn't go through the spiritual trauma that Daniel did. So do I even have a right to relate to the questions he's asking or whatever? And yet here you are. Your mom was right there with you reading what you're reading, having the tough conversations. And you, like you said, yours was more of a philosophical, like this never did feel right. And so just because you don't have that, you know, badge of honor of I've been rejected by everyone that I love, <laughs> that right. doesn't mean that this is like you're excluded from this process. This is something that we're all going through as as humans, uh, not just our generation, but all generations before us and after us are participating in this trajectory towards towards love. And that comes with with questions and and answers and then questions we have to reject and answers we have to reject. For and sure. I and like, I think Oh, keep going. Sorry. I was just gonna say, like, and and being having the luxury and the privilege that I do of not being wholeheartedly rejected by some tribe. I mean, I, I guess I, I was like there are people at Moody who didn't agree with what I was saying, but obviously it's like I, I'm not I'm not being rejected or cast out for who I am as a person. Um I then think that I hold the responsibility to to really try and vocalize that this narrow-minded system is not working and trying to learn how to create a bigger, more open system for the people who it's really not working for. Um, and I, there are so many people who have been beaten down and uh, they, they need other voices who haven't necessarily had that same uh, castaway kind of mindset given to them to, to push back because they've been, bludgeoned and bruised so badly by the system and i feel like that's one reason why you and i can work so well together is because 
when I'm like, <laughs> you know, hey, this is what the church did. And, you know, this is what I'm having to deal with. And you just take a step back and you say, you know, that's not normal or healthy, right? Like, that's not right. what healthy people do. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Well, like, here's what my family did. It's like, oh, wait, there's <laughs> there's other mm. options out there. This isn't like how it has to be. But at the same time, what I do for you is I'm like, this is what I'm going through. And you're like, oh, wow, there's people out there who've experienced like real trauma. And as a pastor, I know how to interact with those people because I've seen it, my friend Daniel, you know, like uh, there, there's yeah. more of a role here to serve. And so we kind of, it's, it's like a wonderful system of checks and balances where we can give each other insight to our very different backgrounds, but we've been on the same path. And I think that's probably why Brian put us together is to, uh, is to utilize both of our strengths and both of our weaknesses in a beautiful way. And uh, so, and I feel like that's what are we seeing this is all about. Um, this is mm. not the sort of uh, biography or memoir that your first book was in the same way, but it's at the same time though, it kind of accomplishes the same goal by giving us sort of an, uh, an insight to the inner workings of uh, Mike Christie's mind, uh, his dog's mind, his uh, he wife's might mind. hear in the background. <laughs> yeah, that's why I said that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and just how beautiful uh, the world that we live that we live in actually is. So, Mike, t- tell us a little bit about this book. Like, where where did this come from? What gave you the idea? Uh, what, who were your influences? Maybe. Yeah. Um, well. Biggest influences would probably be Mary Oliver, Brian Doyle, uh, Richard Rohr. Um, the where this book comes from is, I think through my time at Branches and through my own lived experience, what I realized, and you kind of hit on this earlier, is that like sometimes the thing that people quote unquote come back to after their deconstruction is not just a new way of understanding Jesus or a new way of understanding Christianity. One of the things that I have pushed back on and has quite simply just not worked for me is trying to use the old tools to create a new framework. So I like, I'm not reading my Bible uh, hardly at all, really, uh, to try and create a new progressive, more under, open understanding of, of Christianity. For me, the way in which I started doing that and actually finding meaning again was through uh, really dipping into what Richard Rohr talks about when he talks about this universal Christ, um, this pervasive spirituality that is inherent within all things. And so are we seeing this was my attempt to try and look out on my day-to-day life, um, the common occurrences that are happening, and seeing the pervasive abundant spirit or, or divinity or meaning or flow or whatever name you want to attribute it uh, that's everywhere. That's in all things. That's in the common and the everyday moments and capturing those observations, those things that I'm seeing uh, into poems and essays and just giving space for a spirituality, a meaning, a Christ, whatever name, uh, giving space for that to exist freely and outside the context of some some religious framework, but simply through the framework of interacting with what is showing up in my day-to-day life. Yeah, Mike, that that's just so beautifully stated. I uh, have to say that out of all of the people who read your book, 
and probably next to Emily, um, your biggest fanboy uh, for just how you word things. <laughs> um, that <laughs> that's one of the things that uh, just always draws me to your work. Um, but what you said there about the Bible has been so true for me as well. Um, the, you know, the, even the Bible talks about how we can come to know God through creation. And right, we might not come up with all the right language, all the right doctrines, all the right dogmas or whatever, but we can come to know God in a way that you can't through written words on a page. Uh, watching the fireflies, seeing the butterfly land on the flower, enjoying a afternoon walk with your family. I mean, those things can introduce you to the divine in ways that reading by yourself in your favorite easy chair simply can't. And so I appreciate that uh, so much. One of the things you mentioned, Mary Oliver, one of the quotes I recall from her is where she said that the only command in the Bible she ever followed was consider the lilies. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> totally. That's awesome. Yeah, that always, uh, it always cracks me up, man. So, so this book is, it's, it's looking at reconstruction to use that terminology, uh, not through a better way of reading scripture but through a better way of interacting with a divine uh, and mm. what Richard Rohr may have called the first incarnation, right? Yep, totally. So, no, I think that's dead on. Yeah, so do you want to uh, just let's just go ahead and kick it off. Let's just top right in. I Go ahead and uh, if you want to read us one of your selections uh, from this book, then that would be awesome. I think you said you wanted to start with Reach. Is that right? Yeah, I, I might as well start with the start. Um, so like I said, this book is, you're going to hear some rustling of pages as I kind of shimmy, <laughs> shimmy here. Uh, but this book is really just about, um, attentiveness. And I think Mary Oliver also says attentiveness is, is a form of prayer. Uh, and this first poem is really trying to, trying to set up where the rest of this book is headed. So it's called Reach. And I will read it for you now. More convinced now than ever. There is no necessity outside of reaching out. Joint hands with the universal through the particular. Will you tell me what you love? Here is mine. Boundless unfolding of who I am and you are to all the other pieces. Parceled and placed. Proximal and purposed. The name divine is a song webbed together with wonder, binding and drawing us all toward the possibility that we are capable of seeing, of being, beauty and hope, light and softness. Tenderly I reach to all that bubbles before, setting cynicism down and running to that field where you and I can tumble and twist beyond our rights and wrongs, and into the arms of the all. Wow. I just love, okay, I love so many lines from this. Hmm. But that that first one, uh, more convinced now than ever, there is no necessity outside of reaching out. Hmm. Just what a beautiful yeah. picture. And I can't, I can't help but think, you know, obviously I've got two little ones right now. Sometimes, you know, when my son is messing around and he gets hurt or spills his juice or something like that, his first instinct is just to reach out, just to yeah. reach out. He's not in trouble. He's, you know, 
he's he's made a mistake or something, but I'm not mad at him. I'm not angry. In that moment, I just want to give him an embrace, you know, comfort him, hold him. And I know that as a father, you know, I'm kind of biased when I read that line of just reaching out. But yeah, that speaks to me on so many levels, just because I think of God, the divine, just just wanting us to reach out. <laughs> we don't have to get it right. You know, we don't have to have it all figured out. He just wants that relationship. Right. Totally. Yeah. And I think for me, I mean, that's so much of where it's coming from is the, yeah, there's, I think the the way we discover the divine, whatever that is, or the Christ is through interaction is through, uh, you know, the whole idea two or more are gathered there I am, but I think more in like a, a day to day, just very real sense when you're when you're interacting with something, you are given the chance to to see it and to recognize the uh, divinity that might be right there, and to reach out and to invite yourself into that interaction invites you into an opportunity to recognize a world far beyond just one's own point of view and one's own scope and. That's just how we expand the notion of the divine and the notion of of the meaning of being here at all. So I, I love what you said though about being a dad. I can I'm I don't have kids, but I can totally imagine uh yeah, just the reaching up of the arms. That's a beautiful image. Yeah, and I th- I think about I think about uh in the creation in the creation poem in Genesis one, how God made humankind in his image and he says in male and female and how in christianity we've restricted the role of teaching of communicating of dreaming to you know male leadership in so many cases and yet the full picture of god what it means to be in his image is not just male it's not just female but it's both working together the unity and the diversity uh, all the parts all the creation can't 100%. praises to God. Yeah. And the notion that like those energies are, I mean, they're so dynamic. Um, the feminine and the masculine are such a, they're such a flow more than they are a static entity. I, like um, the notion of, of shifting one's point of view from ponds to rivers. That's something that I've really been thinking about a lot lately and kind of where the term, all these branches comes from. But uh the masculine and the feminine are are rivers that are flowing, not just different ponds that we step into. And every single person has both of those things. And to try and limit where or how we can learn from either uh, is insane. <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. got to well, be it's got to be more dynamic. Yeah, and and you just think about the you know the mother who has to who has to jump into that single parent role, or the father that has to jump into that single parent role. You know they begin taking on the the roles of what would typically be seen as the other gender and they do that for their child. And so I love how scripture describes God as this this father who disciplines his children. <laughs> but at the same time, it describes God as a mother hen, <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> gathering totally. the chicks under the wings. And so it's j- just this whole this whole idea here of of reaching out and uh the line at the end running out to that field where you and I can tumble and twist beyond our rights and wrongs and into the arms of the all. (laughs) It's just whatever you need in that moment. You know, that's, that's what God can be.
that's what God can supply. That's for sure. Yeah. And that's a, that's a bit of a nod to both Rumi and Mary Oliver. I think, um, Rumi has the quote that I'm going to butcher right now, but, uh, yeah, something about, uh, there's a, a field beyond our rights and wrongs and I'll meet you there. Something to that effect. And I think it's been, it's been used by Mary Oliver and then also used by a band called bird talker. So I took it and added my oh, own yeah. little twist to it as well. One of my favorite uh, Rumi quotes is when he says something to the effect of, uh, when you live in the most holy place, you can pray in any direction you please. <laughs> oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. All right. Well, uh, Oh, what was the next one that you wanted to share? I know you had a whole list uh, that you had thought of. Yeah, well, we can kind of go down the line in order. I think um, mine, I have two more. Uh, one is the last poem, and then one is one toward the end about uh, a client of mine for my other job. But were there a couple that you wanted to you wanted to dip into? And I can I can start with those. Yeah, uh, the the, uh, the one on frog sightings just made me laugh and laugh uh, when I read it the first time because of how oh, nice. true. Just how true it can be. <laughs> cool. Right, and that's the yeah, beauty no. of these is they're all so true. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> I don't know. Not to wax poetic too much on that, but the idea that like they're true because they are literally true. They are things that have happened and that I've like tried to take observation and make meaning to and just how, how contrary that is to so many of our uh, spiritual upbringings that are like trying to create this framework that feels deeply untrue and peeling back the layers and trying to actually access what are we actually seeing and encountering. Oh, I'm glad you said that because what I meant by true was not that the dates and the names and the locations were true, but like the essence of the story, you know, is so true. Mm. Like we can just latch on to the meaning, to the, to the, to the point that you're making. And that's the part that resonates with me, you know? Like I've That's never great. been to your mom's back porch, but I have a feeling, <laughs> you know. That's great. Yeah. No, this one is uh that's the, actually the next one, so this is easy to find. Um I'm a huge frog fan. Uh it's something that has kind of really taken ahead in my life uh the last five or so years. But I, I think what I love about frogs is that everybody has seen a frog, no matter what your background or what your ideology, and you have stopped what you're doing and you're like, Oh my god, look a frog. And uh, whatever else is going on, you can you can pay attention to the frog. So, okay. So before you read it, then I just have to throw this out there. Uh, yeah. We have this thing called Barn Night, where not Barn Night. Now, now I know that uh, all these branches you have Barn Night. Um, <laughs> yes. We have Barn Night. This is rural Alabama, right? So we go out to this couple's barn, and they have a swimming pool. And if there's ever like a tree frog over by the swimming pool, you know, making its noise. We will just, everybody runs over there with a flashlight. And the one guy uh, who owns the barn, his name is Jeremy. He's like six, six, eight, right? And you cool. just imagine him running across his front yard with a flashlight looking for a frog. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> That's so great. So Yeah, yeah. there's something, something magical about that. Emily and I, my wife, we used to, we had this letter board thing. Um, and it had a koan that said, seek the snail. Um, and so a, a mindset that I try to take into my day-to-day life is seek the snail and find the frog. Um, oh, yeah. Anyways, I, this is called Frog Sightings and Common Occurring Rarities. Have you ever experienced the absolute, sheer, uncorrupted, no-questions-asked joy that hits you square in the face like an egg shot from a slingshot when you see a frog that you weren't expecting to? There may be no greater event. 
This happened the other day. I was on the back deck with my family at their house in Michigan, and we were getting ready to leave for the airport. I had been visiting for about a week and was about to head home to my wife and dog and the wonderful swirl that is paving one's own path, when all of a sudden, out of the somberness of departure, rose a gasp. Look, a frog, my mom said joyously. Hopping across the deck was a little web-footed, midsummer, leaf-green-colored, slimy, subtle creature. Frogs are subtle, are they not? There's no flaunting, no pretense. There's a certain level of awkwardness that is tied to only being able to hop to get around, I'd imagine. Just think about that for a moment. Hopping around the grocery aisle, hopping down the aisle on your wedding day, hopping aboard a plane. Everyone rushed to the spot on the deck where the frog had stopped. It looked up. We looked down. The dog came over, a lug of a golden retriever named Mowgli. He also bent down and met the frog eye to eye. The frog remained motionless, eyes big, looking ahead. We were running late to the airport to begin with, and there's something wonderful about thinking that I could have missed a flight on a plane flying 34,000 feet in the air and covering over 2,000 miles in under five hours, all of this due to a frog sighting. Frogs are common occurring rarities. Think of the horror of being so ready and preoccupied with getting to the airport that you totally missed the frog. Hopefully life never reaches that sinful state. Common occurring rarities deserve our attention. They are the infinity of prayers shooting up from within the infinity of occurrences that make up what we call common everyday life. And it is my sense that the holy, whatever and wherever that word might be, is inviting us to a soft furred nuzzle through our rapt attention to them. Yeah, wow. Well, that's just great. I just I can just picture the whole thing. And uh <laughs> it makes me so happy. Um the other thing that came to my mind uh, as you were reading was how if there's ever a cat, like my wife Laura, we, we she just has to stop. <laughs> see if she can tame it in those next few minutes so she can pet it at least once before we continue, right? That's awesome. Oh, man. So the whole family just <laughs> putting the paws on everything yeah. to go and observe this little frog. Yeah, the frog. that's great. Meanwhile, jet fuel is being pumped into the plane. I just, yeah, I love like kind of going down the rabbit hole of those little things. So one little interaction is feeding so many other different pieces. <laughs> yeah, and then... Oh man, and then all of uh every other event throughout that day happens because you paused just long enough to see that frog. Like had you left 30 seconds earlier, you know, you might have hit that red light that you know, yeah. whatever. Who knows what would have happened. And yet because totally. you stopped and, to see that frog, here we are talking today. <laughs> I know, and that frog has no idea. He's probably two generations past at this point his offspring. <laughs> yeah. They're doing their own thing down at the creek. <laughs> it's, it's, I don't know. It's great, which is just another, I mean, to come back to the roar idea. And obviously so many other people have spoken to this and then like, it's just a mystic mindset, but literally everything is pointing up and out of itself towards some sort of greater narrative of holiness and interconnection. And to be able to pay attention to one thing is to be able to pay attention to that overstory, so to speak. And that's, uh, that's the good stuff in my mind. Yeah, and paying attention to that one frog. Uh, 
kind of cues you into the fact that, hey, I might have been that frog for somebody else, <laughs> you know, oh, like, yeah. who knows the impact that I've had on someone else's life. And I don't even think about them. I don't even know about them. Or, you know, maybe it was like you mentioned a second ago, maybe it was your granddad or your grandma who had that impact on them. And yet here you are two years later, hopping down the wedding aisle, you know, not even aware <laughs> of the bigger story that you're a part of. Totally. Yeah. And just that notion, I mean, to come back to the, the firefly idea too, but everything is built on interaction and to kind of understand and not understand to, to really be able to be wrapped in the embrace of whatever the divine is, is to be allowing yourself to interact with as much perspective and possibility as possible. Was wow, there, yeah. um, do, do you have any, another one? Yeah. Yeah. We can get to another one as, as we're, uh, as I find it here in my notes, uh, it, it just kind of reminds me of the interconnectedness of everything and how, how COVID really brought that to our attention. You know, mm. your action, you know, one sneeze, one cough you know, or whatever could have, tremendous effects on the world or on the world around you and the lives of other people. And we were aware of that, of course, because of flu season and, you know, the chicken pox and whatever, but COVID made it so much more apparent just how interconnected we all are and how yeah. our decisions affect everything. And I wish I could remember the quote. I, re I wish I could remember. It was a definition that uh, Rob gave one time on sin and it was something about an intentional disruption of shalom. Hmm. And it was, it was much more <laughs> beautifully worded than that. But just that idea that the reason why, you know, sin is a big deal is not because you're breaking uh, a rule and now you've been struck off the list and you're not going to get Christmas presents this year because, <laughs> you know, Santa knows when you're naughty or nice. It's because our actions matter. And, and even the little things, you know, even like, you know, telling a lie or trying to, gets you know take something that doesn't belong to you or something like that can have tremendous effects on uh, the universe around us just like that frog hopping across the porch and it's it's so much more bigger than ourselves <laughs> it just impacts the the world around us right here and right now um yeah that's absolutely and i you know i was thinking daniel if it's okay with you um the essay that i have uh the most people who've reached out to me, friends and family, that's been meaningful to them is is one called "Remembering My Grandfather," and it's a little bit it's a little bit longer, um, not too long, but uh, I think that like my this essay really kind of captures where I tangibly learned that mindset of interconnectedness was through him and through his observations, and like it's something that could be presented through, you know, a spiritual framework, but really looking at his life was, was what taught me that. So I'd, I'd love to yeah. read that. Hey, yeah, go for it. And then, uh, the deep time of holes comes after that. And so we can go right yeah. into that one after we talk about your grandfather for a moment. Perfect. Yeah. And these are actually, so these next two essays focus on my two, uh, two different grandfathers. So this first one is my dad's dad. Um, and the second one, that I'll get to is my mom's dad, both extremely different individuals, but um, my name is, so it's, it's Mike, but Michael, Richard, Christie, and I'm named after both of them. So uh, my mom's dad's name was Michael and my dad's dad's name was Richard. And so pretty early on when I, you know, you, I feel like as a kid, you always kind of ask about where your name comes from. And when I learned that these two 
men really kind of were put on a pedestal for me. And I, I enjoyed and gleaned so much from each of their lives. And like I said, vastly different people. Um, but my, my dad's dad was just such a, such a patriarch for our family and somebody that we all just loved and adored. He and my grandma coming to all the hockey games growing up and we're very connected with all the aunts and uncles on that side of the family. So he, um, yeah, he passed away a couple of years ago. And when he did, both of them are gone now. But when, when my dad's dad passed away, this essay was born, um, just kind of thinking back on his life and his perspective. And about six months before he passed, he uh, actually came out to Spokane with my parents, where I lived to visit me and Emily and my sister was living here at the time. Uh, and he was, I believe at the time he came, he was 91. Um, but my grandma had passed away and he was looking to do a little bit more exploring with his life. And he came out <laughs> yeah. with them. And this is kind of born from that. And then also born from kind of looking back on his life. Awesome. I can't wait to hear it. Remembering my grandfather. On the last flight of his life, my grandfather hadn't brought a book. He didn't fuss with the free headset to watch a movie or catch up with the news. Bewildered by what must have been over four hours of immense boredom, I asked him what he had done during the flight. He was coming to visit me, so I'd been on the same flight numerous times, and I knew it's long and grueling and a bit boring even with a book or a show or some other distraction. His answer was matter-of-fact. I just looked out the window. If I were to boil down all my interactions with my grandpa into one lesson that I gleaned from him during the 25 years our existence coincided, it would be simple. There's enough mystery in our midst to last our curiosity a lifetime. No matter the duration of our time spent together, inevitably at some point in the interaction, he would raise his arms, get bug-eyed, and say, God, in a way that sounded like, God! Not out of any kind of deeply held reverence, but because there was no other word that seemed to capture what awe and wonder he was gleaning from where or what his mind was focused. The stories are vast. His eyes would wander out over the vast canopy of deciduous trees in my parents' backyard, following the paths of squirrels and other assorted creatures. He was completely detached from any conversation and would only interject on an occasional comment making some reference to the world of wonder from which he had just returned. There was the time when, with the greatest of detail, he told me about the rabbits in his backyard, with which he had con a conflicted relationship. They had been eating his flowers, but he was intrigued somehow that they knew to come back to the same flower day after day. His own joy in seeing them consistently led him to make them a new offering. Cheerios in a cereal bowl underneath some patio furniture. And standing by the sliding door, he would watch, calling to Grandma to gleefully announce the return of his friends, the rabbits, coming back, as he put it, to stick their mug in his offering bowl. Now, how does an animal know to come back like that? Think of the brain power. I mean, my God, he would say. Similar sentiments were expressed when I told him that fireflies didn't die in the winter but burrowed underground, to which he went on a tear about resurrection, not mentioning our, sing our Middle Eastern Jewish buddy Jesus, but instead choosing to focus on the resurrections here and now, the ones he witnessed every day of his life, 
threw the fireflies out his window, and the snakes and the bugs and the birds and the rabbits that seemingly always somehow came back to his gardens over the years, and beyond that, returning year after year, long after we pass. His words, his choice of animals, not mine. How do they know to return like that? He wondered aloud. So where are you, Grandpa? Where has the you of you wandered off to? Where or perhaps how do you return like these living things you marveled at? Surely you are doing so, because I know you would never have accepted the simple denouncement of just a casket beneath the earth, just a headstone to kneel beside. Where is it that you have gone to? Rainbows overhead, fallen trees in the backyard, little shivers of the spine when we sit still long enough to let the memory of you wash over us. As a kid, you walked by what eventually became the tree that sat in the front yard of the house I once lived in. On the way to dropping me off at elementary school one morning, the same one you attended, you told me that you walked by that oak monster with the outstretched arms when you were my age. I walked and played under that tree 70 years later, which means we walked by one another as boys, the meaninglessness of years and time being the only veil of separation. There was a raccoon family in that tree when I was a kid. They would look in at me through my bedroom window as I would look back at them burrowed in the hollowed-out tree branch that had likely been there when you had walked by years before, a branch that fell off somewhere along the timeline. As a child, did you ever see the ancestors of these furry friends who would peer in at me late into the evening? Did you witness them when you built the addition on the house all those years later for my parents? Do we see the ones we love when we see what they love and appreciate those things in the same way? Birds remain fairly proximal. There were likely birds you saw as a boy whose great-great-great-grandkids soared over my head as a kid as well. There's a mystery to all of this that I cannot understand. The last plane ride you ever took was 2,000 miles to and from my new home to see this place I now occupy. Your eyes and mind... Those tools of yours always focused on the wonderful. They saw my dog. They beamed at Emily when she got off work and joined us at Chaps for dinner. They gaped in amazement at the rolling hills and lakes surrounding my home, the same ones that I pass by, nearly oblivious. You have tasted the scone that I eat as I write this, raving of its cinnamon flavor. You have seen these birds and hills here, too. Your emotion and your curiosity and your you-ness has coalesced in the same spaces I and all that have loved you and that have loved and that you have loved have focused on. We share curious points of intersection. Do we see this? Like the bugs and the snakes and the birds and the rabbits, the interconnections always come back. They always remain. The little patch of planet your rabbit hopped along as you gazed will stay. The trees to which your mind wandered will be in the backyard. The cinnamon scone will retain its flavor. Two thousand miles lay between Detroit and Spokane that your eyes have witnessed from out of a plane window. The same miles and land my eyes will witness as I make my way back home to celebrate you. If who we are is a consequence of what we appreciate, these miles are testament to the fact that there is more place and space to marvel and explore and discover little remnants of your appreciation than your whole family could ever cover in its collective lifetime. 
because you were one to look out the window. The finite attaches itself to slivers of the infinite during its time within space and scope, and when the finite leaves us, it extends its arms from the places it looked at and marveled at and attached itself to, inviting us into eternal embrace for the duration of its memory. We may have lost you, but we can never lose you. You extend and whisper from every crevice and space you gazed upon and to which you projected your heart. And for you, that was a constant process. That's the birds and the snakes and the trees. That's the rabbits. That's all of us. There are puzzle pieces that have been littered everywhere throughout the course of your life. They are put together with participation in the same process you partook in so well. A process of unabashed love dedicated to discovering and giving oneself to the reality that there's enough mystery in our midst to sustain our curiosity for a lifetime. A treasure hunt with no chest at the end but little beats and shim bits and shimmers of you every step along the way. I will see you there, on that walk with the intent of wonder and curiosity, every day for the rest of my life, and in doing so I will pass you along to those I extend myself to as well, those who would never have known you in the flesh. I will stand beside you gazing, and the reality of your being will never stop returning, like the rabbits to your backyard like the fireflies on a summer night, like the wonder that glossed over your eyes as you peered in awe. Mike, that, that story is just awesome. <laughs> I I now realize uh, why that has to be one of your friends and family's uh, favorite parts of the book. And I'm so thankful that you have shared that little piece of your granddad uh, with us. I mean, just uh, that line at the end about you walking the same path that he walks because you carry uh, his sense of wonder and all with you. Um, yeah, that hit clo- that hits close to home uh, for sure. Mm. Well, yeah, thanks, man. And I feel like, I mean, it's obviously, it's about my grandpa, but it's also uh, about my relationship with like, with Christ now and with, uh, with the divine and how I interact with spirituality because I don't think the point is about accepting something into one's heart. I think the point is about aligning with something. Um, and I, I think that the ultimate message of Jesus, who is this physical manifestation of this insistent Christ that's in all things is, is me too, is here I am walking with you and we're doing this thing together. It's, it's not about, adopting one thing into our lives. It's about aligning with and, and remaining in step with something. And just as I want to want to remain in step with this, this idea of there's enough curiosity in our midst to last our wonder a lifetime. Um, I think I want to remain in step with the themes and messages of, of the Christ too, and finding ways and, and people and themes that, our life giving and to remain in step with is ultimately the, the work and the, the gift. You know, that, that reminds me so much of how in scripture, you know, Jesus never tells his disciples, accept me into your heart. <laughs> he tells them, follow me, go where I go and, you know, do what I do. And he tells them again and again, uh, you know, you guys are going to be known by the fruit that you produce, that fruit that comes through, you know, aligning yourself with me uh, in your care for the neighbor, in your care for the the one who has been rejected, 
and your love for the widow and the orphan and visiting the imprisoned, you know, that's, that's how you show someone that you're a Christ follower, you know, not by saying the right prayers or reciting the right verses, but by walking in step with the divine. And, uh, totally dude, that's, yeah, that's, that's an awesome parallel. Hmm. Thanks. Wow. You know, I thought it's, it's funny how Brian McLaren <laughs> points out, uh, I think it was in his book, do I stay Christian? How the term Christian is only used well, like twice in the new Testament. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, follower or disciple is used, you know, just dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Yeah. And we want to carry the name without carrying the responsibility of being beacons of light and love in the world. And seeing your granddad as a, uh, as a Christ figure, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a powerful message. Um, so, so share, share with us about your other grandfather. You said the next uh, story is about him. Yeah. So this next one is about um, my mom's dad. Uh, and not to get too, too in the weeds, but uh, a little bit more complicated relationship there. Um, and I, I don't want to tell anybody's story except for mine. So I will say that my, my own story is one of um, appreciation. And I like always looked at him as somebody who really enjoyed being outside. He and my grandma on that side uh, lived on 10 acres of land uh, during a formative season of my life when I was a kid. And I remember going out to their lake house and he was always out in the field or by the trees, um, feeding the birds, feeding deer, uh, just taking care of these 10 acres. And it gave him so much joy being outside. Um, and I, I really feel like I've, I've, I've gleaned a lot of my own appreciation from, from the way he approached that. And I remember there was one time when him and I were, uh, working out there, uh, and he, I was probably like nine, I don't know. I was pretty young and he was digging a hole on the side of the lake house. And this is me, um, remembering that interaction, through the light of some meaning that I am making now as I'm older. And I wrote this at a time that he was uh, not doing so well. Uh, he's since passed on as well, uh, but he was, he was pretty sick and I was, uh, I had this memory come back to me and uh, wrote about it and tried to try to make some meaning. So this is called the deep time of holes. When I was about five to 10 years old, my grandpa who I called Papa dug a hole. I can't remember exactly why he dug this hole, but a hole was dug, and I found myself down in the hole with him. It was located to the west of the house, east of the pond, plopped in the middle of ten or so acres of land he and my nanny lived on. While down in this hole that rose up to the top of my young head, Papa used his right pointer finger to trace downward diagonally across layers of soil, sand, clay, and rock. You're looking at thousands of years right here, Papa said. Each layer is a different era. Different types of rock exist within each. Can you see? With a good eye, you can see from the coloring the different happenings in the era that you're looking at. I watched as his finger traveled centuries, millennia, not knowing what I was seeing, but also knowing intuitively that I was small. The frogs from the pond nearby carried on with their steady croaking. The cicadas swirled and sung above. 
robins landed softly to the south on the old wooden fence with bird seed with bird seed strewn beneath it. The snake living in the cattails, a blue racer, wriggled its way down toward the water. Fifteen to twenty years have passed since then. Not enough time to leave its mark in that hole. I sit two thousand miles away, married and discovering my first gray beard hair. Papa sits at home battling cancer, and what seems like an eternity in the scope of the two of our lives is nothing. In the time of the whole, we are still standing there within. Wow. And I know it says in the book that your papa passed away shortly after you're reading this, or after writing this. Um, yeah. I know that had to be tough. But... And yet, yeah. still, we're with we're within the space of that hole. You know, it hasn't even been another layer hasn't even been added yet. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's uh, there's this beautiful book. It's about caves in deep time by this guy named Robert McFarland, and he talks about being in this cave. And there's this like this this cave painting that is just a hand outline uh, with like clay ochre surrounded on the outside of it, which, uh, like this red clay. And he talks about how these cave paintings, they would like stick the clay in their mouth and then they put their hand on the cave wall and then they would blow the clay outside of their mouth and then it would leave the print of their hand. And Robert McFarland talks about how he's standing in this cave and he's all alone and he puts his hand in the same place where this, this, this person from 5,000 years ago put their hand. And he says, all this time suddenly melted, and he was just holding hands with this person from thousands of years before. And I love that image. I just love the idea that time is so, so much different than the way that we think about it. And and the separation between us and those that we love who've passed on and and just all of all of humanity and even stretching beyond that is so small and we're all connected and much more entwined than we might think. Yeah, it's it's like anytime you visit a a national park or maybe even a monument at a uh, at a famous historical site, and just thinking about the fact that you're standing where they stood, you know, you're walking the past, walking the streets that they walked, and we're all part of the same story, and not as disconnected as as our uh, houses in the suburbs might lead us to think, right? Yeah, absolutely, totally. All right, well. Uh, you said you had two more to share, right? Uh, yeah, you said sure. You had two towards the end that you wanted to, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I know that the the uh, man. Are we seeing this? <laughs> That's <laughs> okay. Maybe we should say this. You shouldn't depend upon Mike to read all these for you. Uh, you should go to Amazon <laughs> or, or your favorite bookstore and you know purchase this thing. I saw that you'd put it on. Uh, you put it on sale for for fairly cheap. So. Uh, the paperback. So you should go on Amazon and buy this thing now and read all these poems. Uh, Cause otherwise I'm going to have Mike read the whole book. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> it's just, uh, it could be, yeah, it could right. double as my audio book. It'll be perfect. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> hey, you did a good job. So um, let's see. There were two at the end you said you wanted, um, but go, go ahead, go for it. I'll let you, I'll let you lead the way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It sounds good. And um, yeah, it's, it's on, it's on Amazon, but also uh, if you have a favorite local bookstore, do that. That'd be fun. And the the I made this book in mind with a hardcover. There is a soft cover that you can get on Amazon, but I'm I'm proud of how the hardcover turned out. And your local bookstore should be able to order it. Uh, if oh if really you go awesome okay. yeah totally. Um, 
but yeah, I, so this is kind of shifting gears a bit, uh, but I, I'm not just a pastor. My main job is housing case management. So I work with people who have been experiencing homelessness for quite a while. A lot of my clients, especially now, have a dual diagnosis of some sort of psychiatric disorder and some substance use disorder. Um, so I'm working with people who are coming out of um, a psychiatric hospital here in Washington. And uh, there are people who who have just a, just a swirl of life experience um, and have been really dealt it. And- tough hand yeah and i laugh because you you keep uh collections of frog books to show them right in your uh in your office <laughs> yes I have so when they come in and they get the book of frogs yes the book of frogs so when they get when they get a little flustered or whatever you're like hey wait let's just stop and let's look at some frogs i love it <laughs> okay absolutely um, it's it's where the human and the human meet and the client and the case <laughs> manager take a take a break yes exactly um, <laughs> So this is uh, a reflecting on an experience I had with one of my clients who was potentially going to get evicted from their housing, and they were very stressed. Um, they were very worked up and uh, just worried about what was going on, and we were we were on hold because we were trying to call, uh, I believe it was DSHS or some sort of government agency because they were trying to access their food benefits. I can't remember the specifics, but it's just basically about kind of what I just hit on the idea that there's client and there's case manager, and then there is a human and a human. And I think it's important to remember, remember that anybody that we encounter, uh, somebody who's experiencing homelessness, somebody who is ideologically vastly different than us, all those things are just like roles and masks. Um, and really there we're, we're human beings and humanity should always take precedent over ideology in my mind. So, uh, this is called the light behind. A client was in my office after a housing contingency plan, a meeting where property management kindly, but firmly let her know that any more lease violations could lead to termination of her housing, the housing that got her off the street. She's in my office now. There's a punctuated silence, but it breaks. It feels like someone has sucked the joy out of me. I can't find joy anymore, she says through tears. Her head is down. She's far away. We are on the phone with DSHS, trying to resolve one of the many stressors that have created this feeling. There is a long hold, as there always seems to be. You lived in Arkansas for a bit, right? I ask, attempting to move away from the burdensome task into reflective memory. She says yes, and she begins to tell me about living there. I mentioned that I've been to Arkansas. I've seen the hot springs and the hills of the Ozarks. I ask her where she's from. She tells me of the place, its name, how it is hidden by those hills. She rolls her wheelchair over to my computer. We go on Google Maps, and I look up the town. There are about five north-by-south streets and six east-by-west. It is small. It is one you have to zoom in quite a bit to see, one with likely less than 5,000 people, one where people undoubtedly remember her name and think of her and her role there and that little slice of place. On the map, I can see there's a fly shop in the town, striking given its limited variety of businesses and minimal population. There are flies on my Orvis sweater. We laugh at the connection, and she tells me about the serpentine river full of trout. It's the geographic marker of the area, and it runs through the middle of town. 
I can see this. Satellite imagery accompanies memory and story as she tells me how she used to go to the park at Rambeside and bask on the shore, near the railroad bridge, under the trees. She asked to do street view. At her direction, we start in the center of town and make our way out toward the perimeter. As we virtually cruise, we pass by a coffee stand, a store to rent kayaks. We are still on hold. Keep going, she says. The pavement turns to dirt. More and more trees overhang, blue skies overhead on the screen, moments before we have talked about clouds and seasonal affective disorder. Wait, wait, go back. On the dirt road sits an old house. There's my old Mercedes. Oh my, this is from a while back. This is from when I lived there, she says. A vintage old car sits in front. She tells me about the place. A house on a slight incline. Stone foundation. Beautiful old stone wall out front possibly late 1800s. Trees and vegetation surround, a grill in the front yard, life, happiness, a home. Her old Rottweiler, she says, buried under, as she points, that tree there. And there's laughter all of a sudden, smiles all of a sudden, and we're still on hold. My daughter is a surgeon there, in a small hospital in the neighboring town that's slightly bigger. She and her husband have two daughters. An unfurling has happened, a reminder of the beauty and light and story inherently woven within. More than the stress, more than the heavy, we are people, no matter the clouds that linger, always light behind. Yeah, what a reminder. What a reminder of uh, how, how quickly things can turn, you know? Totally. 100%. Yeah, there's your there's your old Mercedes in front of the house that everybody in town knows about <laughs> everybody who knew you, that you worked with, that you went to school with, that your kids grew up with. And now here you are over 2000 miles away, uh, on the verge of homelessness yet again. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I don't know. It's such a remind, like th so many things can be politicized. Um, and whenever like uh, a person is politicized, I it's just ugh. And that's so much of what's happened with the uh, the homelessness crisis. And I don't know, having worked in this line of work for over two years now, and just being able, like I said, to kind of just human to human, like let's have these human interactions. I think they're no matter what ideology, we could do better with having more of those. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest things that churches need to learn to do is is interact with <laughs> interact with these people, interact with those who have to deal with uh, homelessness, who are maybe same sex attracted, uh, interact with people who've been imprisoned or who are felons or whatever, and and understand that these are not issues; these are people with with feelings and stories and families and love and and hates and fear and uh and joy and sorrow and it's not our job to you know just to write them off as a category but to get to know them on a personal level even if that means even if that means sacrificing our own self <laughs> with all of our old uh dogmas and prejudices and you know all that goes yeah. along with that 
for for sure. Whenever your ideology doesn't make way for somebody's full authentic humanity, I think there's there's a bit of an issue. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is you know, which is the main thing Jesus got onto the uh uh you know, the religious leaders of his day about. <laughs> for so. sure. Totally. Oh man. Well, do you wanna finish us off with you said it's the last poem in your book, is that right? Yeah. Um I'm trying to think. Maybe I'm I'm changing my mind on the spot. Okay, go for <laughs> That's it. Okay. Go for it. Um, That's fine. The last one. It's a great poem. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that I would like to read. So I'm flipping through here trying to find it. Um, it's a poem about um, a woodpecker. Oh, it's called Knock, Knock, Knock. It's on page 35. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, yeah. like, this was... Okay, I, I don't have all of your poems memorized. That was one that I had picked out that I had wanted you to read, but, you know, we were <laughs> pushing the boundaries of time. So <laughs> Yeah, right. And I threw in the, the long one about my grandpa, so I, just, <laughs> I appreciate that. It's cool that you had it on your, on your mind because this one... Yeah, this one kind of captures thematically a bit of like what this book is going for i think as does the essay are we seeing this hence the title but that's that's one you can read uh when you go to your local bookstore and uh place the other. <laughs> um but yeah this is this is about um uh a woodpecker in my backyard and it's a bit sad because i was lying in a hammock when this whole interaction happened and the trees in which that hammock uh was being held up by are now no longer there. Uh, they were oh. dead um, and about to fall on the house or the brand new fence. And they had like a, they were being eaten by this like type of beetle anyways. So it's a bummer. There's trees, but you know, memory, it's all flowing and swirling, but yeah, this well, poem the trees is are about to exist for every person who's listening to this podcast. Yeah, so there you go. go. That's a, that's a good way to think about it. Um, but this is called knock, knock, knock. I'm in the hammock looking upward. A woodpecker lands on the tree supporting my suspended bed, and it does what woodpeckers do, knocking its head against bark above, ascending bit by bit, after each series of three hammer-headed attempts. The tree carries the beak-banging action downward. Each knock yields a vibration that funnels from limb to branch to trunk to hammock, softly buzzing through its descent, arriving at me. I am feeling this. I am an extension of this. This being the knock of a bird beak 25 feet above. This being what the wood conduit of the tree carries. This being hundreds of thousands of years of biological evolution and growth and intention and development and choice. This being the habitual pattern of another creature. This being what was happening with or without me here. Knock, knock, knock. One more action is shared. Once more, the woodpecker's choice arrives within me, through the weird way that vibration is external and also not, and the weird way that all of this is external and also not. Knock, knock, knock. I am what the woodpecker is doing. Knock, knock, knock. Perhaps I am what all of this is doing. There is no great distinction that confluence cannot question and find resolve through those moments that we remember to step beyond. 
William Wordsworth said that sometimes when we're dealing with nature, we murder to dissect. Hmm. And so uh, I'm just going to allow that one to stand on its own. How about that? Thanks. That sounds good. <laughs> Mike, man, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a pleasure. And perhaps one day uh, you can come back to talk more about your ministry with the a homeless community there with, are you still with Catholic charities? Is that right? Yeah. Yep. That's the agency that I'm working with for sure. Yeah. And we can uh, sort of circling back, returning to your roots there in a way. Huh? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. How about that? There you go. It's, it's Catholicism. Can't get away from yeah. it. <laughs> no. <Nope. laughs> <laughs> oh man. But anyways, thanks so much. Uh, guys, be sure to go f- check out all these branches online. And if you happen to live in the Spokane area, uh, come on, do yourself a favor. Go, go get a drink with Mike and spend some time with his church. They're great people. So Perry Street uh, Brewery, guys. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, <laughs> thank you all for joining us again. Catch you on the next episode. And as always, God bless.